Amen. Well, do you guys remember that movie Jaws, the first one of them, uh, when the captain of the boat, he sees the shark for the first time? And do you remember what he says to everybody else? He says, we are going to need a bigger boat, okay? That's how we felt last weekend. We are going to need a bigger building and one is coming, but right now we have capacity issues. If you were here two weeks ago at our vision weekend, we had over 2000 people here and we thought, oh my goodness. And then last week we had over 2,200 people on campus. And so one of the reasons you're like, they're pushing this Saturday night thing hard, you're thinking, right? And I know what some of you are thinking, other people should definitely go to Saturday night. Well, <laughs> uh, here's the thing, guys, we are out of seats and we are out of services. We bought the smallest legal seat possible for a church and any guy in here over 200 pounds goes, I know, right? <laughs> Some of you would be a little more charismatic in your worship if you weren't worried about poking your neighbor in the eye. Well, guys, we, we added 70 more. You didn't even notice it probably. We added 70 more seats in this room at the beginning of the year. We've got almost 100 seats in the lobby, and our lobby is seated every service. And so we're out of seats, and then we're out of services. We've thought about a 3 a.m. Vampires for Christ service, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know how successful that would be. No, we've got a service tonight, or last night, we've got a service tonight, we've got a service, two services this morning uh, that I can check it, that I know of. Uh, there's 1.8 million people in the triad. We, there's only two churches in the triad that run four live services in one location. So we are trying to leverage and steward this building the best that we can. What we're asking is, if possible, can you move to Saturday nights or to Sunday nights? And, and we, but we don't want a culture of guilt. It's interesting, I was at my son's basketball game uh, a week or two ago, and I met this young couple, and they came up to me, and they said, hey, Pastor Kyle, uh, we go to two cities. I said, oh, it's so nice to meet you. I said, I, I don't recognize you. I said, what service do you go to? And they go, one of the morning ones. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want a culture of guilt. We want a culture of grace, gratitude. We are in a season where for the next year, we're trying to figure out. We're, we're gonna get in, I'm gonna give you a big building update next week. But we are trying to get into this building as quickly and as responsibly as possible. In the meantime, we're asking, can you move for the sake of mission? Because here's the, here's the truth. Uh, when we don't have a seat for somebody, and most people who do come for the first time, and if you're new and you're a guest, welcome, uh, they come Sunday morning, that's what they're used to. And if you move to Sunday night or Saturday night, it opens up more seats in the morning. And let me just say this too, I hope you know this. We're not just about attendance here. I celebrated the 2,000 and the 2,200 people. Um, but, we, but how we know we're not just about attendance is we're always trying to get people deeply connected to our church through the Weekender. By the way, if you've been coming around for a while or you're just checking us out, let me encourage you to go to the Weekender. It's gonna be this next weekend, the 27th and the 28th. And this is basically, if, you, if you're new and you go, what is the Weekender? It's a massive DTR. Do you remember DTRs in high school? Define the relationship, right? There's been two people they've been talking and the girl's like, what are you trying to do here, right? <laughs> What are your expectations? What is, are, are we committed? That's the conversation we're having at the Weekender. It's an opportunity for you to find out more about us in our church, us to find out more about you. And if you're married, free date night, okay? This is some of you, your, your wife's been asking you and begging you for weeks to take you on a date night. This is a free one. We're gonna give you a free meal and free childcare and a hot breakfast next morning. So let me just encourage you guys. Uh, we, we're growing. This is a unique season in the life of our church and we wanna take as many people with us into the future. So let me pray for us and then we're gonna dive into Joshua 1. Um, Lord, I'm grateful for um, just the stories we heard on that video of people moving to nights. We know that it's, it's not for everybody. We know that not everybody can. Uh, but if, there's, if there are people in this room who could, for a season, uh, get their family or get their community group or get some of their friends and begin to go to Sunday night or Saturday night, Lord, we just pray that they would do that. But I pray against what they call the bystander effect, which is where everybody thinks that everybody else is gonna do something. I pray that you would give us the grace to continue to steward 
and leverage this facility over the next year as we look toward our future home and hub. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, a question that people sometimes ask is, what type of person does God use? I don't know if you've ever asked that question. You may say, does God use smart people or does God use simple people? And if you read your Bible, the answer is yes. You may say, does God use old people or does God use young people? And then you read your Bible, like he uses old people and young people. Uh, does God use rich people or does God use poor people? And you look over your Bible, you go, he uses all types of people. And so then you may think, okay, I know what God does. He randomly chooses people. Is that what he does? He just out of nowhere says, I'll, I'll work through that guy or I'll work through that girl. It's like, well, he may occasionally do that, but there are patterns that we see in the Bible. Who does God use? Here's the answer. The person who wants to be used. Who does God use? The person who cares. You ever wonder, like, who does God use to reach people who are far from God? To reach lost people? People who care about lost people. Who does God use to disciple others? People who care about discipling others. Who does God use to care for the unborn? People who care about the unborn. God comes where he's wanted. God comes where he's welcomed. And we learn from Joshua that God cares a lot more about our availability than our ability. Uh, what I want to do today, we're, gonna, we're, we're beginning, we, the last two weeks we were in the book of Deuteronomy. Today, turn to Joshua chapter 1, turn to type 2. We're going to pick up on Joshua. Let me introduce you to him. T turn to verse 1. Here's what it says. After the death of Moses, and by the way, we said Moses isn't going to be forgotten. He's mentioned over 50 times just in the book of Joshua. It says, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant. Okay, let's stop for a second. Let's just talk about who Joshua is. And let's talk about what the book of Joshua is about. I want us to kind of, this is kind of an introductory sermon to understand the person of Joshua and the book of Joshua. So let me give you three words for Joshua because we, we don't have time to go through everything. But if you go, okay, who is this guy? Because how does God prepare people to be used? Well, Joshua was three things, okay? He was a son. Let me give you these. He was a son, he was a soldier, and he was a spy. They're all S's, easy to remember. Okay, first, he was a son. Do you see that? He's the son of none. Really, it's pronounced noon, but do you remember that joke that kids make in middle school? Who's the only guy in the Bible who didn't have a dad? The son of none. Okay, haha. Okay, um, it's really pronounced noon, but uh, but everyone says none. So okay, the son of none. So here's what we have. We have Joshua. Now here's what this means. He was. And we find out in First Chronicles that he was the firstborn son of noon. And here's what this means. This means that at the Passover, Joshua was saved because of his parents putting blood over the door. So let's not forget this. The first thing that you, if you're going to be used by God, you got to be a believer. Joshua believed in God, and more importantly, early on, his parents believed in God. I really believe that the greatest gift God gives children outside of salvation is believing parents. Do you understand that most children in our city, and we love our whole city, and we, when we say we love our city, we mean we love the kids of our city as well. Most kids in our city have no access to the gospel in their home. Zero. They have no access to the gospel in their school. And because of most people are either out of church or most churches have gone theologically liberal. Most people show up to the, a church and there's no gospel there. The first thing we see about Joshua is he had godly parents. Let me encourage parents, you never know how much what you're doing matters to your kids. The second thing that God used in his life is Joshua was a soldier. So if you want to know, when was the first time Joshua's name shows up in the Bible? That's always an interesting thing. The first time his name shows up in the Bible is in Exodus 17. Don't turn there now. But Joshua is fighting the Amalekites. It's kind of mentioned briefly. It's a small battle, but here's the principle. If you're going to fight bigger battles later in life, you need to fight little battles early in life, right? And we all know this. Here's what happens. I see this all the time. People get married, and they have all these what they call marriage problems. Let me help you out. There's no such thing as a marriage problem. There are individual people problems that people bring into marriage. 
Here's what happens in marriage. Sometimes it happens on the honeymoon, sorry. Uh, other times it happens in the first year. It certainly happens in the first three to five years. Normally people realize, oh my goodness, we're having all these problems. And if I'm really honest with it, with myself, these problems are happening because of battles I was unwilling to fight when I was single. And now they're showing up because I'm in constant close proximity with another person. This is why whenever, and I don't speak to middle schoolers or high schoolers a lot anymore, but I used to have opportunities to. And every time I would speak to middle schoolers and high schoolers, and I try to do this in appropriate ways, I'd say, guys, everything that I've ever struggled with and everything that I'm still tempted to go back to, I started when I was your age. And so the best thing that you can tell a middle schooler and a high schooler is there's only bigger battles to fight, and the battles that you don't fight, they don't go away. So the first thing that Joshua does is he's a, he's a son, a saved son with a godly family. The second thing is he's a soldier who's willing to fight battles. The third thing is, and most famously, he was one of the 12 spies. So if you want to know where that's at, you can read this with your community group. Numbers chapter 13. Remember, Moses, he has the promises of God, and he sends out 12 spies, and they go and they spy in the land, and 10 of them come back and go, too big, too hard, too much. And only Joshua and Caleb say, guys, we could do this. Let's go. Now, do you remember any of the other names of the 10 spies? No, because the fearful are always forgotten. I mean, guys, one of the names of the other spies was Shofat. <laughs> you should remember that name. That's, a, that's an interesting name. We don't remember him because the fearful are always forgotten. So who does God use? God uses the person who cares. God uses the person who wants to be used. And God uses many things in our lives. The battles we're willing to fight early. Are you? Fight the addiction in your life now. Cultivate the godly attributes in your life now. And then be a person of faith. This is what Joshua is. Okay, all that's setting up to say this. Look what he says here. Let's go to uh, verse two. He said, Moses, my servant is dead. Now, if you're Joshua, you go, I know. I just heard his farewell speech and we just had the big funeral and he went up on the mountain and you've already told us this. Why are you telling us this again? Because sometimes we need to hear that things are over. How many people in our city need to hear this? The pandemic is over. <laughs> but some people need to hear this. Your kids are gone. They're not in the house anymore. How many men need to hear, you're not single anymore. You're married. It's funny, my brother one time, he said, uh, they were newly married, they've got a great marriage, but he, he comes home and he just brought takeout from home. And his wife's like, I cook dinner. <laughs> He's like, oh, this is what I've done. He said, she's like, you're married now. We eat dinner together. Some people need to hear your career is over, you're retired, you're an empty nester. It's hard, right? Part of what's hard is to accept the season and stage you're in and to accept the season and stage that's over. And why that's hard is because most things in your life, you only get to do once. Moses is dead. Here's what he says. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all of the people into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. If there are two words I want you to remember from this sermon, it's in that text, it says go over. I've been praying for myself and for you guys, the go over spirit. This is what the whole book is about. The whole book is about there's this Jordan River that nobody has crossed for 40 years and it's time to cross. In fact, here's the whole book of, the whole book of uh, Joshua in a, in a phrase is stop complaining and start conquering and claiming. The entire book of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy is a bunch of people complaining. 
by the way, whatever you're complaining about is what you need to conquer. And I'm going to give you a chance at the end of the service. But some of you are complaining about your marriage, and it's time to conquer it, to claim the promises of God in it. The whole book of, of, of um, Joshua works like this, and it's, it's a metaphor for your life. You need to enter, that's go over. You need to engage the enemy, and you need to enjoy God's promises. Like no other book in the Bible, the book of Joshua is the abundant Christian life pictured. It's the vibrant Christian life. It's the victorious Christian life. It's telling us that so much in our Christian faith, we live in between promise and fulfillment. God has made promises, but we need to fulfill them. I'm praying for the go-over spirit in your life. Where do you need to go over? Anywhere that you're complaining. Anywhere where you've accepted defeat. Anywhere where you're making excuses, anywhere where you have been in the same place, because we're going to get to this. If you don't go over, what do you do? You stay in the wilderness and you wonder. And I've met people like that, and so have you. And some of you, some of you, that describes all of medical school. You didn't go over. You didn't make any progress. It describes your whole college experience. It describes all your single years. It explains since you've had kids, you've been in the exact same place. Now, this isn't a self-help. I want you to see how we go over. Look, he, he tells us how to go over. Look, verse uh, three, he says this. Every place, and look, look at how this is written. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread. Now, I'm not real good with English, but that's future tense, right? That you, you will do this, okay? Look at this. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you. Just as promised to Moses. Wait a second. God uses future tense. and Is God not good at grammar? Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, you need to go and take this land, but I have already given it to you. This is a, this is a New Testament principle. What does the New Testament say? The, my, my, one of my favorite verses in the whole New Testament is Romans 8.32. It says this, he who did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also not with him freely give us all things? How much of Christ do you want? How much of the Christian life do you want to live? Now, here's, I'm going to tell you how to do it. I'm a, here we try to be, if you're new, we try to be two things, biblical and very, very practical. So do you notice what motivates the go-over spirit? The spirit that says, I want to walk in and welcome the promises of, of God in my life. It's the promises of God. So let's talk about the promises of God. Okay, so there are, 7,500, roughly, I looked this up this week, 7,500 promises from God to people in the Bible. There's more promises than that if we're just talking about people make promises to each other. Guys, there's only 32,000 verses in the Bible. That means 25% of your Bible is promise. And God speaks three, when you're reading your Bible, as a general rule, God speaks three ways when you're reading your Bible. He speaks in principle. That's mostly the Proverbs. Uh, the, 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 these are generally true statements of how you should live. Then he, he speaks in command or law. That's the most common way he speaks. But then he speaks in promise. Now, in a minute, I'm gonna give you promises and we're gonna talk about how to live them out, but let me just say this. There are promises in the Bible for your family. Find them. There are promises in the Bible for your future. Find them. There are promises in the Bible about how God's gonna be with you in suffering. Find them. Now, let me give you a couple kind of, you know, airbags around this because I want us to think about this. Because uh, people make mistakes with promises and then they get discouraged. I don't want you to get discouraged. 
because I think discouragement is Satan's number one tactic for the Christian. Let me, let me give you a couple things. As you think about promises, a couple things to think about. First of all, make sure that what you're claiming is a promise, not a principle. Again, when you read the Proverbs, they're principles. So people, sometimes they get discouraged because they read the principle that says, train your child in the way that he should go. And when he's older, he will not depart. That's a principle. It's a generally true statement of how the world works, but it's not a promise. The second mistake, so the first mistake people make with, with promises is that they think of principles of promise. The second mistake people make with promises is they take them out of context. Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me is not about sports. <laughs> I hate to break it to you. It's not about studies and getting into a certain school at all. In fact, if you read what the, if you, so re, this is why context, right? When you read the Bible, it's the same thing as real estate. What's most important? Location, location, location. Um, and so when you read the Bible, if you read Philippians 4, it's, Paul says that whole context is, God will help me be content whether I have a lot or a little. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So if you get a salary cut, you've got a promise. And if you get an inheritance, you have a promise. But that promise has a context. The third thing that we need to remember, so not principles, remember the context. And the third thing is, see, is it, an, is it what's called an absolute promise or a conditional promise? There are absolute promises in the Bible. An absolute promise always has to do with the character of God. This is who God will be for you. That's an absolute promise. But many of the promises in the Bible are conditional if you do this. I have given you the land, but your foot has to go on it. You know what the sad thing is? Uh, if you read this, if you go into the geography, God promised them 300,000 square miles. They only ever took 30,000. Israel only took 10% of what God gave them. So you have to understand promises, but then there's actually a deeper thing you have to understand. You have to understand the place you're in. Look, look at verse four, I'll show you this. This is a way to think about your life. Look at verse four and five. He says this, from the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land, and, and land is the main theme in Joshua, and it equals life. It says this, it's mentioned 87 times in Joshua. All the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with you, or sorry, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. So here's an outline. Some of you like outlines. Here's an outline for the whole book of Joshua, very simply. One through five, chapters one through five, enter the land. Chapters six through 12, engage the enemy. Chapters 13 through 20, divide the land. Isn't that beautiful? Let's get it and then let's share it with everyone we love. What a beautiful picture. And then 22 through 24, how to live in the land and be committed long-term. So everything's about land, but here's what you have to understand. There are in the Bible, uh, and this is, this is a paradigm for thinking uh, about your spiritual life uh, symbolically for the rest of the Bible, is there are four different types of land in the Bible and every person finds themselves in one of those lands. Let me give you them. There's Egypt, there's the wilderness, there's Canaan, and there's Babylon. Let's talk about each one of them. So some people find themselves in Egypt. What is Egypt? Well, it's a big part of the book of Exodus. And Egypt is a place of slavery and false worship. And Egypt is where every person is born into. We are not born into Eden anymore. Only, only one couple got born into Eden, Adam and Eve. We all long for Eden, but we're born in Egypt. And Egypt is primarily, if you read this in the Bible, it's primarily a place of slavery. What is America? 
It's a place where people are addicted. And we don't use the word slavery for many reasons, but the biblical word for addiction is slavery. And people are addicted to self-medicating. They're addicted to pornography. They're addicted to alcohol. They're addicted to amusing themselves to death. When you see addiction everywhere, you know you're in Egypt. But Egypt is also a place of false worship, right? So it's interesting. In America, we worship many things. Probably most, we worship sex and money. And here's what's interesting. When you, you know, here's how idols work. An idol is something we worship instead of God. It's worshiping the creation instead of the creator. And here's what happens with idols. Idols always ask for more and abuse us. So some people go, how did we get to transgender reassignment surgery and pronoun conversations? I know how we got here. We've worshiped sex as a nation for decades. So if you were to even go back 15 years ago and you were to try to explain to somebody transgender surgery and pronouns, they couldn't understand it. It, wouldn't make, it doesn't really make sense today either, but it really wouldn't make sense back then. And, but what happens is when you, I don't know, we're not to the end of it yet. I don't know what the end of it is. But when you keep worshiping the idol of sex, it keeps asking for more and abusing you more. The second thing people worship is money. Now, money's a good thing. It can be a good thing. Uh, we're supposed to love people, use money. What do we do? We love money and we use people. But here's how you know people worship money. People worship money because you can always tell. It's, it's hard to know, like, what do people worship? And if you want to diagnose it, like, what do I worship? One of the questions you need to look for is where are you sacrificing? And people worship money, and how do we know this? Because they're willing to sacrifice their personal health for it. They're willing to sacrifice the relationships in their life, often their family for it. And they're willing to sacrifice their personal integrity to get more of it. So Egypt is a place of slavery and false worship, and it's a place where you need to be saved out of. In a couple weeks, we're going to do baptisms, and every time, basically, you go under the water and you come out, it's like, I just went through the Red Sea. I just came out of Egypt, and we're here to celebrate that with everybody. The way that you come out of Egypt is you admit that you're a sinner, you believe in what Jesus Christ has done, and you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord. Some of you are in Egypt. And I'm gonna give you a chance at the end to come out. Many of you are in the wilderness. The wilderness. I meet people in the wilderness all the time. I don't have some supernatural spiritual gift, but I can almost see people when they're in the wilderness. Here's the wilderness. The wilderness is the place you get stuck. It's where you wander. And, you, and how do you get in the wilderness? Because you're unwilling to go over. There are things you've been unwilling to do there's been ways you've been unwilling to act. There are decisions you've been unwilling to make. And here's the thing about the wilderness. The people, the whole book, most of the Pentateuch, the people are in the wilderness. They spent 40 years in the wilderness. And here's what to remember about the wilderness. This is, this is deep. There are always two generations in the wilderness. The first generation is the older generation, and they're in the wilderness because of the decisions that they've made. And you don't feel quite as bad for them. Because, you know, they're responsible for being in the wilderness. And then there are their kids. Do you understand that in the wilderness, if we go back to the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, most people, because they had lots of kids, most people in the wilderness, it wasn't their fault. They were in the wilderness. And some of you are in the wilderness because of decisions your parents made. Parents, you're going to need every motivation possible to get out of the wilderness. 
And so one of the motivations might be you don't want to keep your kids in the wilderness. Many people were thrust into the wilderness during COVID and they have not come out. They're still talking about it. And the encouragement would be come out of the wilderness so that your kids don't have to spend the last five to seven years in your house in the wilderness. What happens is every generation of the church finds itself in the wilderness where the, future, the former generation would not take ground. And I, I love the church. I'm grateful for all the leaders and have gone before us. But part of what has happened, why the church is so disrespected in our society, I'm going to talk about this in a couple weeks, and why it's seen as so small and so irrelevant and so insignificant is because a lot of former leaders took us into the wilderness. And it's time for us to go over. The third place is Canaan. Canaan is not heaven. Canaan is not Eden. The promised land is not heaven. Here's what the promised land is. It's the place where you fight battles. That's all it was. They would constantly have to fight. There would constantly be enemies. It is not a place where you relax. It is not a place where you take it easy. It's a place where you say, I'm gonna believe God, and I'm gonna, at this point, engage the next enemy based on what God has said in his promises. Here's the danger of being in Canaan. If you're in Canaan and you refuse to fight the battles, you end up in Babylon. And, you know, you meet people in the wilderness all the time. Um, and every once in a while, you meet somebody who's in Babylon, and that person is broken. Everybody, you read the history of the people. When you go to Babylon, you're very sad. Because when you go to Babylon, basically what, ha what God does in the Bible is, first, he warns you in the land, in Canaan. And then he disciplines you in the land. And then he kicks you out of the land. And I, I meet people probably once a month who they got caught in some grievous sin that they were unable to confess, and so they got caught. And when that happens, you go to Babylon. You don't, I don't know, and here's what you do in Babylon. So in the wilderness, the call is go over. In Babylon, the call is go back. So if you're in Babylon, here's what you do. You go and do the things you used to do. It's like, okay, I used to read my Bible. Go back. This is the language of repentance. I used to be in meaningful Christian community. Go back. I used to pray. Go back. So we have to know God's promises. We have to know the place we're in because the way out is the promises. And we need courage. Look here. If you look at me at verse 6, here's, here's what everybody knows from Joshua. He says this, be strong and courageous for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. So this is the first of three times he's gonna say, be strong and courageous. Now he doesn't say you're gonna feel strong and courageous. He doesn't say you look strong and courageous. He says, I want you to act and orient yourself in the world this way. Look what he says here. He says, only be strong and very courageous. So this is verse seven, he repeats it being careful to do according to all the law all that all the law that Moses my servant commanded you do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may have good success wherever you go so he says be strong and courageous by the way the number one most common command in scripture is do not be afraid some version of that it shows up 366 times which means every day of the year even on leap year there you go you got a promise um why? Because we, are, we tend to be the exact opposite of that. What, what are most people, especially in America today, they are weak and they are afraid. 
what is wrong with us? Why, do you ever wonder this? Why are we so afraid? Why did our grandparents fight in World War II and we can't ask a girl out? Like what is broken in us? I think there's several things. I think right now, you know, life has been so good that it makes us weak. Have you ever seen that little, I won't put it on the screen, but there's a, you ever see that thing? It says, what does it say? Uh, good, good times create weak men. Weak men create hard times. Hard times create good men. <laughs> good men create good times. Good times create weak men. Where are we? Good times, weak men. That's where we are. We, and we're so afraid of losing what we have. I was talking to some missionaries in China. I've been there twice. And they're lifers. You know, you meet these lifer missionaries. They're not there for two or three years. They've learned the language. They've adapted to society. They feel more at home in China than they do in America. Actually, to be honest with you, you talk to them, they don't really feel comfortable either place. And I said to them, because I was amazed, I said, well, how are you guys doing it? What's so hard about it? They said, the hardest thing is knowing all we're missing out on. They were 22 years in America and they've lived the last 18 overseas. The hardest thing sometimes is knowing all you could lose by being courageous. Right, it's like, well, why was William Wallace, if you know that movie in Braveheart, why was he able to be so courageous? He'd already lost everything. But there's other reasons I think why we're, we're afraid. We're afraid because we have so much information today. Most of us, I'm guessing this morning, the first thing we did was we picked up our phone and then we looked at it and we immediately were depressed, <laughs> right? Because you go two places, you, you know, your, your sports team lost, you're depressed, you know, you, the, the, you got more bad news, you know, you're depressed. You see how, you go on Instagram, you see how great everybody else's filtered life is, you're depressed. So we have, we're, uh, it used to be you had your local paper and it came out once a day and it told you what went on locally. Now we get breaking news all over the world and of course there's something going wrong all the time. But there's another thing. They, they say when they, when they break up fears, there, there tends to be, I'm oversimplifying, but they, there tend to be two categories people fear. They fear that something wrong is going to happen or they fear that they're going to make the wrong choice. And those are real fears for people. So they fear something bad's gonna happen. And let me just tell you, something bad is going to happen to you eventually, obviously. And the more people you love, maybe something bad won't happen to you, but it'll happen to somebody you love. Is that better? No, it's probably worse. You'd wish it, you wish it happened to you instead. And so it's like, well, you know, part of it is, okay, I'm going to courageously face the future. How about this? We're, we're afraid that we're gonna make a wrong choice because we have so many options today. So many options for our careers, so many options for spouses, so many options for jobs, so many options for travel. They say now there used to be fear of missing out, FOMO. There's a new one, FOBO, fear of a better offer. We, we, this is how we live. And so what I want us to do is, I, I don't wanna just tell you be courageous, I want you to see how was he encouraged to be courageous. Look at this, it says this, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, verse eight, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, which means to be successful in the things that matter. And then you will have good success. So. What is courage and how do we get it? Now, we know what courage is because all you have to do is interview people who are courageous and they all say the same thing, moving forward even though I'm fearful. That's the definition of courage. In fact, here's something interesting. If you're afraid to ask a girl out and you don't ask her out or you ask her out, guess what? You felt the same amount of fear. Might as well ask her out. <laughs> 
I, I knew a dad, I didn't tell the story last night, I knew a dad that he told us, I'm not recommending this, but he told his son when he was like in high school, he goes, I want you to find the prettiest girl in, in the school and I want you to ask her out. <laughs> and the guy said, I'm gonna get rejected. He goes, I know. <laughs> but I want you to have courage. I want you to do courageous things. It'll be good for you to fail forward. <laughs> courage is moving forward even though you're fearful. That's the definition of courage. And, and here's what courage is theologically. Courage is actually believing God and taking your next step. Courage is actually, it's practicing the sovereignty of God in your life. And it says we get courage by meditating on God's word. Now that sounds kind of silly. If we would, you know, you're telling a military commander to think about a religious text. Yawn, yawn. Here's why this is important. All of your problems, or not, that's, too, that's stated too much. Uh, many of your problems in life are from meditating on the wrong things. The number one addiction, well, outside of maybe substance, would be sexual addiction. What is sexual addiction? Meditating on that which is forbidden. One of the greatest problems, that's probably the greatest problem for men. What is the greatest problem for women today? Anxiety. What is anxiety? Meditating on all of the problems in my life. Many people who don't struggle with that, they struggle with unforgiveness and envy and jealousy. And what is that? Meditating on what other people have or have done wrong. I want you to hear there is a power in meditation. And this doesn't happen overnight, but it happens over time. If you will begin to meditate on God's word, here's what will happen. God's promises will get bigger than your problems. But it doesn't happen overnight, it happens over time. What happens is you begin to care. Imagine if you walked into work and you were like, I actually, like genuinely, I care more about what God has said than what people say. That, I will just tell you, that will eventually lead to courage in your life, no question. If you begin, this is a deep one, if you begin to care more about heavenly reward than earthly consequence. But this, this, doesn't, this doesn't happen just in a service. This can't happen on a Sunday or a weekend. This happens as you and I commit to meditating on the word, which leads to the second thing, beliefs need to become convictions. Christians believe a bunch of things. We need to move from belief to conviction. Belief is, I would live for this. Conviction is, I would die for this. Belief is, I'm holding on to this. Conviction at some level is, it's holding on to me. Belief is, I, I marked this in my Bible. Conviction is, this is marked in me. Belief is, I've gotten through my Bible. Conviction is, the Bible has gotten through me. And so what he says is, I need you to meditate that meditation will lead not just to belief, but to conviction. And then if you do that, you'll wake up. And if you meditate on the word of God every day, you'll wake up in six months and your life will be so different, you won't be able to understand it. And you'll start thinking differently and you'll start speaking differently and you'll start acting differently, which is why he says in verse seven, be careful, which is a great advice if you're fighting. Because what you wanna be as a military leader is careful. And here's what careful means. I'm doing what God has said and so my conscience can be clear. Because as you start to do something courageous at work or courageous in your family, here's, a, here's another principle from scripture, things tend to get worse before they get better. 
Because you start acting differently, everyone in your family's gonna be like, what are you doing? You start acting differently at work, what got into you? And things will get worse before they get better. And what you're gonna need to do is in your own conscience, you're gonna need to say, I'm being, this, Paul talked about this all the time, we don't talk about this anymore. The apostle Paul said, I live in such a way that my conscience is clear before God and before other people. We need courage, look what he says. Verse nine, have I not commanded you? Final time, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And then I want you to see in verse 10 and 11 how Moses or how Joshua was able to respond, look here. And Joshua commanded, it's interesting, he was, verse nine just said God commanded him, now he's commanding others, look here. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions for within three days you will pass over this Jordan to go and to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. When you have heard from God clearly, you can speak clearly to other people in your life. We live in this goofy culture where everybody wants to say kinda, sorta, I feel, maybe. We need God's men and women who stand up and they say, I have been with God and I have heard from God and here's where we're headed and here's your role. That's what we, that's what we need particularly dads to do. Wives and kids will put up with a lot if they know dad's been with God and he's trying. And he says, I have a plan for our family. I've got a plan for our finances. I've got a plan for our family over the next decade that we have left with the kids in the house. I have a plan for us to relationally connect. I have a plan for us to grow spiritually together as a family. He's able to call these things out of people and look how they respond. Look, well, verse 14 first, he says this, your wives and your little ones and your livestock, this is verse 14, shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan, but all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them. Basically, he said, guys, we are fighting for our families. And that's exactly what we're doing in America. That's exactly what we're doing in this church. The reason I talk so much about marriage and I talk about so much about moms and dads and I talk so much about kids and families is most of the fight has to happen at the family level and dad needs to step up. Our value here is we bless men to build up, or we build up men to bless women and children. And we wanna strengthen men to serve women and children. And women have their unique role and don't worry ladies, I'm coming back next week with Rahab, okay? <laughs> Hooker turned hero, okay? That's the, <laughs> that's not the sermon title. That'll, that'll get some interesting searches. But that's next week. Um, but here's the thing I want us to see. When you do that, verse 16, look at how they respond. And they answered Joshua, all that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. This is the spirit we want in the home. Loving leadership of dad and mom. Desire to obey of children. This is what we want in the church hopefully humble leaders who hear from God and say, here's where we're going. And the church says, this sounds awesome, we're all in. This is what they call moving at the speed of trust. 
If you've ever wondered why does it take so long to get things done in your family, it's a lack of trust. If you ever want to know why does it take, there's a committee on the committee on the committee and throw it to this committee and throw it to that committee in the church, what's that? A lack of trust. But when men can say, I've been with God, I've heard from him, and this is important too. Joshua's not pointing the way, he's leading the way. He's got to be at the front of the battles. Look what they do at the very end. It says this, verse 17. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. And then look what they do. This is what the people do. They pray over Joshua. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. They end by praying over Joshua and we wanna end this service and begin the new year the way this chapter ends. We wanna pray over you guys. What we're gonna do in just a moment is we're just gonna, we're gonna, and there's no pressure, there's no manipulation, you don't have to come forward, but I'm gonna invite anybody who wants to to come forward who feels like they need prayer for courage in their life because courage is not a small category. It is a big category that touches every area of our life. And so, and what we need, by the way, we need moments. We need, some of you need a line in the sand because you've been telling yourself you're gonna do something and you're gonna go over and you need to tell one more person. And we're gonna have the elders up here in a few minutes and you can trust us. You can give us the fine shine of your life. And all we wanna do is we wanna just pray over it. We wanna draw a line in the sand with you. We wanna have a little ceremony, maybe a little funeral for the past that's died. And we wanna say, let's go, we're gonna help you. We're not gonna just say go over. We're gonna say, we'd like to go over with you. And so we're gonna come up in a second, take a seat. You got it. I love your heart. I love this. That's the go over spirit. I love it. I, I want you to come. We're gonna bring the elders up in just a minute. Let me, uh, I'm not done yet. No, um, I love it. I really do love it. Let me say this guys. Uh, some of you, let me give you a couple categories to work with. Okay. Some of you are gonna need the courage to come to Christ. And that's the, this is big courage. It's the courage of surrender. It's the courage of admitting, admitting I'm a sinner. It's the courage of removing the fig leaf that Adam had to remove and say, I can't cover this myself. I need to be covered. Some of you, you're going to need the courage to walk away. There's a relationship that's toxic and you need to walk away. There's a job that's unhealthy that you need to walk away from. There's an addiction that you need to walk away from. Some of you, and you may not come forward, but you need to stay where you are maybe and you need to be honest with yourself. You tell yourself you don't have a problem when you have a problem. You tell yourself your marriage is okay when it's not okay. You tell yourself your kids are doing fine and they're not doing fine. For some of you, you're gonna need the courage to publicly identify with Christ. And that may mean baptism in a few weeks here. For many of you, that means just the courage to let somebody else at your work know that you're a Christian. Only you and Jesus know that you're a Christian. It's time to let somebody else know. Some of you, you've got bad news and you need the courage to face it. I was talking to a I'm get emotional here, but I was talking to a guy in our church. We're praying over him and his wife. He got a cancer diagnosis. And he said, I'm trying to be strong, but when you have to go to the DMV and sign everything over into your wife's name, it gets a little scary. If you're facing some type of illness or injury, we wanna pray for you. If, if you've got some addiction you need to fight, we're gonna pray for you. If you need somebody that you need to forgive, you go, I gotta forgive. And forgiving means I'm no longer gonna be defined by what they did. And there's three spirits I'm gonna pray over us three attitudes of the heart. The first spirit I already talked about, it's the go over spirit. So there's something I know I need to do and I want someone to pray for me because I need to leave here and I need to make a phone call and I need to have a conversation and I need to make a decision. That's the go over. For some of you, it's go back. 
You've been, you're in Babylon for some reason and it's time to go back. But I wanna encourage many of you, I believe in this room, you need the go again spirit. Because I know you heard this. You go, I've been to retreats and I've heard the, I've struggled with this my whole life. My marriage has always been a five out of 10. Well, listen, there's this story in um, 1 Kings 18 where Elijah says to Ahab, he says, uh, God's gonna bring a promise. He said, it's gonna rain. And Ahab goes out and he comes back and he says, there's nothing there. And Elijah says, go again. And he goes seven times. And on the seventh time he comes back and he said, I see a small cloud. And this is what we're saying. We're saying, go again. And we wanna pray for that small cloud to come and for it to rain. I'm gonna pray. You stand and sing and come forward as the Lord leads. Elders come forward, let's pray. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for this church. We wanna be a church where we impart things. We wanna be a response culture, Lord. We wanna be a prayerful culture. I'm praying the go back spirit on anyone who needs to turn around. And the grace of the gospel is anybody can have a second chance and we're a place where people's lives can fall apart. But I pray for the go over spirits conversations that need to be had and decisions that need to be made and lines that need to be drawn. And for many in this room, I pray for the go again spirits. Go again and have the conversation. Go again and pray. Go again and share the gospel. Lord, some people need to come forward for themselves. Some people need to come forward for others. We do all of this because of the power of the gospel. We're we are told, he who did not spare his son, but freely gave him up for us, how will he not also with us freely give us all things? Lord, we know when we look at the cross, you have already met our greatest need and fulfilled your greatest promise. Now we're trusting you to fulfill the other ones. We pray this in your name, amen.